This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine September issue podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Oliver Condy. So here's a quick reminder first about our website at classical-music.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read reviews of thousands of recordings, enjoy our free download of the week and a good deal more. Plus we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And finally, to keep abreast of what's happening, sign up to our newsletter via the website. I almost forgot, the September issue is out now. With me in this studio today are managing editor Rebecca Franks, reviews editor Michael Beek and editorial assistant Freya Parr. Hello. 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 So indeed, it's time for music news. Rebecca, what's caught your eye? This month, I have been uh, just keeping an eye on all the new appointments to different orchestras that have been announced or are in the um, in the pipeline. Uh, so we've heard that Vasily Petrenko will be leaving the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra to go to the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London um, in 2021, after 15 years up in Liverpool. Maxim Emelianichev is to be the next principal conductor of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. And the Academy of Ancient Music is now looking for a new music director when Richard Egar leaves in 2021. Um, and those are the ones that have kind of been in the news, but there are also a, a few others just to keep your eye on, which is that the RLPO will, of course, be on the lookout for a new conductor. Um, the BBC Philharmonic is as well, as Juan Jomena has just ended his uh, time there. He's got his last prom coming up this week. 
And um, Vladimir Ruski as well uh, will be leaving the LPO in the 2020 to 2021 season. So it just seems like a really interesting time when we might have mm. quite a few people shuffling around. Yes, it's um, sort of like musical chairs sometimes. <laughs> one leaves and then and the avalanche effect happens. I think the Amelia Anishev um, appointment to the Scottish Chamber Orchestra is really exciting, actually, because what he's done with uh, Musica Turner... Um, being their, um, their pianist there and I think he does quite a lot of conducting with them as well. I think he's a very exciting talent. That'd be really interesting because they've obviously had um, Robin Ticciati there who's really done fantastic things. That seems to be a great partnership. So, yeah, it's definitely a very interesting ensemble to see who they what they're going to come up with. Mm. Of course, Petrenko to the RPO. I mean, the RPO is is always thought of of, of, of an orchestra that appoints this sort of grand or, or conductors. Um, it's a sort of coming-of-age orchestra and a very versatile orchestra. I mean, is it sort of bringing itself much more into line with other orchestras within London, like the LSO and the LPO in the Philharmonia? I mean, it seems to be quite a big statement, doesn't it, to mm. appoint someone like Petrenko, who's done such great things in Liverpool. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's a sort of tougher field, in a way, to compete with now in London. We've got some really cracking combinations there. Mm. Absolutely, and we're going to have the um, BBC Phil announcement soon, I think. So uh, maybe next month we can share that news with you. Um, Michael, you've got some news about the RPO as well, haven't yeah, you? Yes, so sticking with the RPO, they've uh, recently teamed up with Google Arts and Culture, which is a, a free online content and archive sort of platform and app, which is free to download. Uh, and they've basically made available all kinds of materials, sort of from uh, uh, musician interviews, performance uh, clips and things like that, um, all free to access online, which is really exciting. And the most exciting thing at the moment is their sort of 360-degree immersive performance uh, bit, which you can basically sit in the middle of the orchestra and listen and watch a performance of Bartok, a uh, concerto for orchestra. Uh, more fun if you've got a headset, VR headset, but you can look at it online as well. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. seems to be sort of all the vogue, yeah, doesn't the it? Yeah, yeah, the Philomenia. Yeah, definitely. That, no, the... But it's a really interesting thing to do and obviously broadens the sort of the, the appeal of, of orchestral music for wider audiences. How's it accessed then? Through Google? So it's a, it's a, a website, Google Arts and Culture. Oh, There's wow. also an app which is free and you can look at museum collections, all kinds of things on there. So. And I suppose that's one of the challenges as well that um, the RPO and Petrenko, or one of the opportunities as well, what they're going to do with this sort of um, putting the RPO into the digital world. Definitely, and, and, and they've always online. been quite good at doing that anyway with their YouTube channel. So this sort of gathers it all together from, mm. from you know, print items right through to videos. And in an age where kids are growing up with screens in front of them, absolutely, you know, and VR headsets, and VR headsets, so common. Um, then I think the audience can only grow for that. And I, I think, think so. that's a really wise thing to do. Yeah, actually, yeah. definitely. Um, let's move on to Freya. Yeah, so this is slightly sadder news um, that happened at the end of, uh, middle of July, actually, um, that Oliver Nusson, the British composer-conductor, um, has passed away after a short illness at the age of only 66. Um, it's particularly sad because he's such a leading figure in the contemporary classical music world and he seems to be such a champion of other composers. Lots of people have stood up and shared their sadness about um, his passing, and his music was so colourful and considered. And we're actually going to listen to the first movement of his violin concerto now. Thank you. 
Um, so that was um, an extract from the Violin Concerto. I, I really loved bumping into Oliver Nussman from time to time, you know, at various sort of uh, press events. There he would be either at proms launches or Royal Philharmonic Society, uh, awards events, and he was always just interesting and interested and he left behind a trail of people who thought exactly the same you know there's a trail of friendships not only did they find him inspirational but I think they found him supportive and great fun as well you know and his music is just as you say so colourful and so inventive and uh, he's a great loss. The warmth of the tributes um, that all the musicians were um, offering was just really touching actually just it really seemed that was him and that he really made a positive impact on so many people's lives. And he just seemed to have this magic as well when he was conducting. I saw him at, I think it was the Wigmore Hall, maybe last year actually, conducting, I think he did maybe did one of his pieces, but it was, again, it was a lot of other composers. And there was just something about the way he conducted that just, it, it had that warmth and that something kind of spellbinding and magical about it, as, as well as the precision. I mean, I think his ear was phenomenal. Of course, the work he did with the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group, astonishing. I mean, championed so much new music. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah, kind of a list for, list, <laughs> like, listed in the 19th century, championing other composers. He's kind of been like that yeah, absolutely. nowadays. If you'd like to hear more of his music and his um, conducting, we've actually got a playlist of all of his big hits on our Apple Music page, so head there and have a look. So here's a piece of music that will give you a clue to the new story I'm going to talk about. So this is a curious story. Um, On Antiques Roadshow a few weeks ago, um, a lady turned up with a draft score for Nimrod, one of the variations from the Enigma variations, claiming that it was part of her family's collection and wanting to sell it. And um, the episode showed her quite astonished that it was of such great importance. And the valuation came in at between 80 and £100,000. It turns out that the Elgar Foundation um, claims that it went missing in 1994 from their collection. And the whole thing is very intriguing because... 
The lady's husband was claimed to be a lay clerk at Worcester Cathedral, but he was also a solicitor at the same firm as somebody who worked at the foundation. So the whole thing is sort of mired in in, in a very sort of bizarre kind of... It's, 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 there's a funny flavour about this. Um, so the manuscript is basically sort of sitting there. It was going to be sold at one of the auction houses in London, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sat there in no man's land. Um, it was bequeathed to Caris, who was Elgar's daughter, and she gave it to the foundation with the express um, uh, instructions that it should eventually, I think, go to London, go to the British Museum. So it's, it's, it's one of these sort of watch this space stories. It's, I, I love a good detective story. Yeah, yeah. it's a complicated one, isn't it? But mm. actually also just this idea of scores just turning up in unexpected places as well is sort of in some ways a recurring theme in classical music that we still get these scores that just, you know, kind of surprising. Makes you wonder what's still out there. Definitely. Well, it's incredible. Yeah, if if it went missing in 1994, if you say, that's, you know... A while ago now. 20 years or so. (laughs) No-one's known where it is. And I'm sure you're right, there's other incredibly famous scores that are sitting in someone's attic somewhere. (laughs) People used to gather together manuscripts, shove them in a folder, put them in an archive. uh, There was a good one recently that I was reading about that... um, it wasn't a recent story, I was reading about it recently, but um, that uh, there was a piece that Bach had written for one of his patrons for a birthday gift and the piece had been played and everything, given it as a gift. And then <laughs> the Duke had just stuck it in a shoebox, basically, with all his <laughs> other birthday stuff, and it was found like 300 years later. <laughs> so, yeah, I just it's sort of interesting where they, where they might turn up next. Actually, actually talking of Bach, I was um, in Leipzig at the Bach Museum a couple of months ago, and there's a little sort of chest there that you might use for sort of household bits and bobs, and it was being used in a church somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Germany as a place for people to put collection in. And what nobody would noticed is inside the lid was Bach's sort of emblem, you know, that sort of um, uh, the, the combination of J.S. JSB, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, which which is a, sort of his motif, if you like, and nobody'd noticed this, and it turns out that he it was his chest that was used in his house in Leipzig. That's amazing. And nobody'd noticed it for decades <laughs> and decades and decades because it was sitting in the corner of the dark church. So, yeah, so like manuscripts, is amazing. Yeah, says. never mm. underestimate human ability just to <laughs> stuff things away. The, yeah, stuff things away. And Thankful for hoarders. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to Vince Month's magazine. Freya, tell us what's on the cover of the September issue. Um, Well, in Jeremy's absence, I'm covering his particular piece this month that he wrote uh, about the young saxophonist Jess Gillam um, ahead of her appearance at the last night of the proms. She's already had one appearance at the proms this year and she had two last year, one of which I actually saw her at wearing one of her fabulous two-piece suits um, and it was just incredible she's incredible to watch she's great to talk to she's so full of life she's so vibrant and quite different to a lot of um, young musicians in particular particularly with no press training when she came out of young musicians she was still so great at talking to people um, but yes yeah, so I'm flying the flag on behalf of Jeremy um, he kind of he met her in the Lake District at her parents tea room and it's just a great little insight into her as a young musician and the stuff that she's doing she's just also been signed to Decca so there's lots in the pipeline for her in terms of recordings so lots to look out for uh, she will be recording at Scaramouche which will be um, released I think the day after the, her performance at the last night of the proms but yeah she's just one to watch and she's really great to 
read about. Well, what's fantastic is that she's not only enthusiastic and, 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 and very sort of outgoing, but she plays the saxophone. So, mm. you know, it's not a violinist or a cellist or a pianist, not an instrument that we don't need to know about. Again, mm. it's an instrument that we do need to know about more. You know, this is this is something that is, is very valuable, I think, to the music world. We get very stuck in our sort of four, in, four or five instruments mm. uh, ruts, I think. Mm. Um, and I think it's so nice to be able to explore repertoire outside that norm. Yeah, well, she's perf- she's performing a lot of arrangements of other pieces, and I think she's quite a champion of um, of new material being written for the saxophone. She's played a lot of world premieres now, um, which is great. But you also yeah. kind of have to be as well with the saxophone yeah. in a way because you don't <laughs> really. Have, that's one of the difficult things, I think. You don't ha- necessarily have that kind of core classical repertoire mm. to draw on in the same way that pianists and violinists do. Yeah. So, like, you, I guess you need to have that real sort of um, zeal for. Mm for commissioning things and premiering things and, and arranging things and arranging things I mean things. look at Amy Dixon yeah. it's, it's, it's phenomenal arrangements that she's done or had done both actually mm-hmm. um, so uh, you know it's, you, you do that I suppose you do that with the viola don't you You're, there's a lot of stuff that's arranged but there's an also yeah. lot of stuff that's been premiered yes yeah um, yeah definitely so a lot of people seem to be playing the Bach cello suites on the viola oh on the viola yes, yes indeed Elgar <laughs> <laughs> cello concerto Elgar cello yeah. concerto <laughs> <laughs> So shall I talk about the cover CD? Because it's been a wonderful opportunity to um, showcase um, some modern repertoire for the saxophone. Um, In particular, the Richard Rodney Bennett saxophone concerto, which was written for John Hull, who is the performer on this month's uh, CD. So it's a real treat. And Richard Rodney Bennett, I've been a huge admirer of his um, ever since I was lucky enough to meet him. Of course, he died not so long ago. But um, he was such a versatile musician and could do everything from Mm. jazz Mm. to to uh, period performance, to, um, to to modernist composition, and to this concerto, which combines everything. It's it's got this real cleanness. It's got a real jazz aspect to it, but a Hindemith thrown in there. Lots of blues. Let's hear the um, opening section of the saxophone concerto. So that was the opening to Richard Rodney Bennett's saxophone concerto. Also on the CD is Dominic Muldoni's saxophone concerto, which is a wonderful, again, sort of combination of styles. Um, a little bit darker, but but still so sort of, um, what's the word, knotty and, and melo- also very melodic and very improvisatory. Um, and uh, a piece by Trish Klaus, um, a sort of more jazz, not the kind of thing we necessarily put on the CD, but a real showcase for um, Trish Klaus, saxophonist, new generation artist who's now off the scheme, but um, a wonderful talent. And then mixed in the middle is a, cu- a couple of uh, Richard Rodney Bennett orchestral pieces, so the uh, variations on the 16th century tune and the orchestral suite from the Murder on the Orient Express. Wonderful. Wonderful yes. stuff. I, I love so that. You know, yeah. that waltz that really <laughs> sort of conjures up the train moving off. <laughs> I listened to, to that on one long train journey once, actually. <laughs> 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 But it's, yeah, a real bit of fun for you. 
use for you all, so I do hope you enjoy it. Michael, Recording of the Month. What recording of the month? month. Well, an unexpected delight, actually, for Recording of the Month for September. Life Force is the name of the album. It's actually the debut album of trombonist Peter Moore. Uh, you may remember he won a BBC Young Musician a decade ago when he was 12 years old. Um, so it's quite amazing to think that this is his first album after, you know, 10 years after winning. But, you know, he was only 12, and he said to me, actually, that was too early, really, to start recording an album. <laughs> uh, so it's worth the wait, though. It's a beautiful album and not your usual sort of trombone fare. He, performs vocal leader, for example, on trombone. And this, which is a, an excerpt from the cello sonata by Rachmaninoff in G minor. So, yeah, so that was Peter Moore, uh, accompanied by James Bailey on piano, and that's uh, Life Force, which is out on Rubicon. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to... Yeah, it is beautiful, and it's lovely to see again the trombone. We seem to have an issue where we're championing mm. instruments we don't normally hear in solo repertoire, and yeah. it's great, you mm -hmm. know? It really is. I think it was, I was reading, actually, recently that perhaps in schools that not as many children are taking up wind and brass instruments, actually. Yeah, I read that as well. I haven't read that story. I can't tell you much yeah. more about it, but it's kind of interesting that, yeah. Mm. So that changes. You know, actually, having come back from um, China where, you know, everything's about the violin and the piano, um, less about the cello, the viola, you know, so you really have got the cello, uh, the piano and the, and, and the violin. So I think there has to be a shift, I think, in, in, in their approach to wind instruments and brass instruments. That will come, but I think they, that's probably one of the reasons why orchestras have slightly struggled to develop and professionalise over there. But I think the time will come, but I think we've got to stem that. It's good to be showcasing problem. some of these. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. It really yeah. is. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rebecca, you've got an entirely different story from this magazine. Yes, I have. So this is one of our uh, features this month, which is about, well, it's a totally fascinating look, really, at one of our most written about composers, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven, who may know him. Um, and it's a piece by Robin Wallace, who's an American musicologist, and Beethoven is one of his... Uh, specialisms. And he's written a new book and been involved in this very interesting project, which has cast uh, Beethoven's deafness in kind of completely new light and led to some really interesting new conclusions. Uh, so basically, there was this project to recreate a particular piano that Beethoven was given in 1818 by um, Broadwood. So it's an English piano. And um, we know that he had this piano and he also had built uh, this kind of remarkable amplifier, which was a sort of half sort of half uh, moon-shaped... Um, like a sarcophagus, of, almost. Sort of, yeah, it? sort of placed over the top of the piano. Um, it's sort of quite a remarkable thing. And they sort of knew this existed, but no one had ever really recreated it to find out how it helped him or, or what it did. So there's been this project and there was a CD that's come out on Evil Penguin was a great name, um, which, in which they play some of his late piano sonatas. And they've kind of done experiments to see how this affected um, 
what he was able to hear as he was going increasingly deaf and they found out that actually it had a very big effect. And also that's led to a lot of different conclusions about how that might have affected his music, um, sort of running counter actually to the kind of traditional narrative that we have of him kind of going very deaf and then retreating to his own, into his own mind and writing this very difficult, challenging music because he couldn't hear it. And actually Robin Willis is suggesting that we really need to rethink all that and actually it was it's quite a different narrative so it's a completely fascinating piece and actually Robin Wallace um has draws also on his own personal experience because his uh late wife was deaf and I think that has kind of informed as well his lot of understanding of um of life with without being able to hear well mm. Very sort of uh, inventive solution to a problem that must have been absolutely devastating. Um, so yeah, it's it's a fascinating piece actually, and a real, as you say, an insight into living with a condition and with a disability, if you like. You know, yeah. actually championing that and, and, and overcoming, well, trying to overcome it in, in any case. It's one of the things. Ever, I think everyone, even if they're not classical music lovers, know that Beethoven was deaf because it's used in so many sort of cultural yeah. references mm-hmm. and actually I think it's great to kind of be le- like learn how he coped with that it wasn't an easy you don't overcome that immediately and guess how things sound yeah. and so it's great to actually understand the workings of how he went on to compose yeah and actually it seems that perhaps it, he was never worried about it stopping him composing he was yeah. obviously he wrote the Heiligenstadt Testament and was this kind of very emotionally charged document in a way um and he was, but he was more worried about the social embarrassment of being seen to be a composer who couldn't hear. But actually, I don't think he was necessarily worried that it would affect his ability to compose in a way. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really interesting piece. And as I say, it kind of draws lots of conclusions that are kind of counter to what we think normally. So well worth reading. Right, let's move on. So first listen is where we, each of us, take uh, a recording that has caught our ears over the past couple of weeks and champion it. Uh, Michael, um, tell us what you've discovered. So I've been listening to a release from Deutsche Grammophon. This is a young violinist, so it's another young musician, 17 years old, Daniel Lazakovich. This is his debut album. Uh, It's Bach, Concertos and and a Partita. And uh, it's a phenomenally talented young man. And this performance, it's deft and it's very confident. I can't believe he's 17 years old and this is his debut album. Um, this is a, a, a bit from uh, Gigue from the party to number two in D minor. There you are. So that was uh, young Daniel Zakovich, uh, Zieg from the party to number two in D minor by Bach. Uh, and that's just out on uh, Deutsche Grammophon. I think it's uh, phenomenal. So is that the complete um, uh, solo violin repertoire? Uh, it's not complete. No, it's just uh, it's two concertos and one partita. On the well, clearly he's, he's yeah, very, very talented. Very talented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rebecca. 
So I think I must have just had Beethoven on the brain this month. <laughs> so I brought along a Beethoven album. Uh, this is from uh, pianist Pavel Kolesnikov, and it's his uh, uh, an all Beethoven album on Hyperion. Um, and he is a pianist who uh, sort of came to attention really when he... Um, was a prize winner, won the Honens competition in 2012. And he started off by recording Tchaikovsky, um, and then he did a Chopin Mazurkas disc, which was just one of my favourite discs of that year, actually. He was just such a beautiful player, really sensitive, really just this wonderful kind of... um, Oh, something very sort of whole and complete about his playing. Um, And then he's just recorded Louis Couperin before coming on to this Beethoven album... And again, it's got that same just poise and the musing quality um, to his playing that I really love. And it's an interesting program. It's got the Moonlight Sonata, uh, the Opus 33 Bagatelles, um, C minor 32 variations on an original theme and a sort of collection of other uh, smaller pieces. And so we're going to have a listen to the Adagio Sostenuto, the opening movement of the Moonlight Sonata. That is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It really draws you in, doesn't it? I suppose the speed but... seems very kind of... Um, it's slightly faster than... Mm. It is, actually. I thought it was faster, but yeah. it, it for some it... reason it, it gives it shape, mm. much yeah. more shape mm-hmm. than I would normally hear from a lot of pianists. Mm. Yeah. It seems more forward. It needs to labour over it too much, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah. You kind of think that's what it needs, but it yeah. really doesn't. But because but because he's so even in his touch and so soft and so soft and so um, so gentle mm. with it, then it, it works. Mm. The voicing's incredible as well. It is. You hear that piece played so many times, and it's great to hear someone actually really delicately the balance of it. Yeah, 
Mm. Actually, it's funnily, funnily enough, you hear it played a lot by amateur pianists, but you rarely yeah. hear it played well by <laughs> professional so pianists. That's true, actually. That's it's so, true. you know, yeah. it's sort of one of these sort of people, uh, pieces that people struggle through, and that's you why people are slightly well. sick of it, you know. And, and then you suddenly hear a refreshing recording Anything. of this, and you think, oh, I'm going to fall in love with this. <laughs> well, yeah. That's a good one. All over again, yeah. So we move on to something actually slightly different. Well, very different, in fact. Um, it's an album I've been listening to for the past couple of weeks called Bye Bye Berlin, and it's on Harmonia Mundi, and it features uh, a vocalist, Marion Rompal, uh, the Quatuor Manfred, um, and saxophonist Raphael Amber. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, album. It features music written sort of in 1920s Berlin when things were falling apart, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the great repression, the rise of Nazism, there were strikes, there was poverty around, but there was also these clubs in underground Berlin where this, this new music was rising up, um, uh, pioneered by people like Kurt Weil, influenced by Bertolt Brecht, um, featuring other composers like Hans Eisler, um, also, Alban Berg was joining in, Hindemith. Um, so it's a wonderful sort of mix of jazz styles, club styles, classical styles, real subversion. And there's a whole mix of wonderfully sort of mischievous music making on this. Uh, and one of the most mischievous is Hindemith's version of Wagner's Flying Dutchman Overture, which <laughs> is just the most subversive piece of, of, of uh, string quartet music. Um, it's just hilarious because, of course, Wagner was um, Hitler's one of Hitler's favourite composers. And what Hindemith is doing here is really sort of putting uh, two fingers up at, <laughs> up at Hitler, who was just starting to um, make his mark on a very battered Germany. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I mean, there's uh, there's a real sense of sort of Isherwood's uh, Berlin in there, really, isn't there? This sort of the Otto Dix paintings, this sort of sense of drunkenness and debauchery and <laughs> and uh, lawlessness and yeah. yeah, it's just great. Paints a picture, doesn't it? Yeah. Really does. <laughs> it does all sit up. <laughs> so let's move on to Freya's, and you're going to take us out with something much more jolly, aren't we? Yes, different again. Uh, I realised this month I'd had quite a sort of a month of dark and melancholic listening. So I, when picking my uh, brief notes discs, I decided to pick something completely random and slightly out there, and actually I completely loved it. Um, it's called Diversity, and it's on the Genuine label, and it's um, sort of a selection of uh, works for brass ensemble performed by the European Brass Ensemble, um, lots of different arrangements, and it goes from Walton's Crown Imperial right through to, to arrangements of um, Edelweiss. It's bizarre... <laughs> And yet, it seems to sort of transition between the um, between the movements so beautifully, and works really nicely, and you get completely wrapped up in it. So we're actually going to listen to Malaguena by a Cuban composer called Ernesto Lecuona.
So that was a track from the European Brass Ensemble's new album, Diversity. That's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. It's very fun. My notes when I was writing little notes on it are just full of exclamation marks. <laughs> this is just so fun. Um, the pitching and the sound quality is not always sort of a 10 out of 10, but I just think it's a really fun disc and anything that can do segues, it just like that is just amazing. And actually it shows how brass ensembles can be used in, across so many genres, um, regal, pomp and circumstance and all that stuff, right through to contemporary music and jazz. And I think it was just a lot of fun. Loved it. Great. Fantastic. Well, um, and with that, I think that brings us to the end of this September issue podcast. Um, join us next month when um, we'll be discussing the, uh, the October issue. So it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.